0: Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. I would like to ask Pastor Bill to come up and join me to read the scripture. Let's hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... And the waters that were gathered together, he called. seas. And God God saw that that it it was was good. And God said.
1: Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth.
0: And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And And God God saw that that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the the fourth day. day. And God said,
1: And you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food.
0: And it was so. And And God God saw saw that everything everything he had made, made, and behold, behold, it it was was very very good. good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the The sixth sixth day. day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the hosts of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So So God God blessed blessed the seventh seventh day and and made made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, as we continue worshiping together, I'm going to ask that uh, God's spirit who hovered over the waters would hover over us as a congregation and open our hearts and minds afresh to his word this morning. Dear Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, asking that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make these words of Genesis chapter one come to new life for us this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Well, it was late, and uh, maybe we had gone to a movie earlier in the evening. I I can't remember, but whatever the case was, uh, me and a few of my high school buddies ended up at a Steak and Shake that night because it's open 24 hours and the coffee is cheap and they'll let you just sit there and drink coffee. And so that night as a senior in high school, I was sitting there at Steak and Shake with uh, two of my best friends and, and another one of our friends who was a year ahead of us. So he had just uh, been spending time at college and he had come back for a visit and he had gone to KU to study anthropology and journalism And as we were sitting there drinking cheap coffee at Steak and Shake that night, uh, the conversation turned toward sort of issues of of faith and, and especially human origins and especially with Bob studying anthropology. And I don't know that Bob ever had a strong faith in high school. But whatever faith he had um, had sort of begun to evaporate once he had entered that program at KU in the anthropology department. He was incredibly gifted intellectually. He excelled in his anthropological studies. And, and as he did, again, that, that plausibility of, of a Genesis account of the origins of human beings, the origins of, of the universe as we know it, just began to seem foolish for him. Now, I, I know you're going to have to maybe stretch your, your imagination here a little bit, but when I was in high school, believe it or not, I was a little bit of a Bible nerd. <laughs> and so whenever these kinds of conversations would, would come up, uh, my, I was the one that my friends would always look to you to say, like, well, Bill, like, wh- what do you think? And I remember sitting there in that steak and shake, and Bob was laying out these questions and these arguments. And I remember my friend Tim and Ryan kind of looking to me, expecting me to be the one to sort of respond to these questions. And I, I sort of did my best, but I certainly wasn't convincing Bob. And I remember this moment when he, this sort of look kind of came over his face. It wasn't a, a mocking look. It was actually one of almost kind of pity, and it was, he, Bob, he was too nice of a guy to, to sort of mock me to my face. But the look kind of conveyed, like, Bill, you know, you're kind, you're thoughtful, you're sincere, but you're also kind of sheltered and backward and if you take Genesis 1 as anything other than just a fable, uh, you, you, you've missed it. And I wonder if you've ever been in a conversation like that or had a moment like that, maybe with a, a friend at school, uh, maybe a roommate in college, or, or maybe actually it's passages like this early on in the Bible that have kept you from being more public about your faith. That you've wondered, can, can I, I really be public about my faith if I don't know how to, to talk about Genesis 1 well? And this is certainly a passage that can confound and, and even embarrass Christians when they talk about their faith. But what I hope to show you this morning as we look at this text is that there is no reason to be embarrassed by this passage. Because the story of Genesis 1 is the story of a gloriously good God creating a gloriously good creation filled with gloriously good creatures. Genesis 1 is a narrative that puts love and generosity at the center of creation that says we are not the product of violence. We are not the result of chance. It's better than that. It is so much better than that. And that's not embarrassing. That's good news that's good news. The message of Genesis 1 is that a gloriously good God created a gloriously good creation. As we look at that message this morning, I want you to know that your mind can believe it, that your eyes can see it, and that your heart longs for it. Your mind can believe it, your heart belongs for your eyes can see it so first your your mind can believe it last week pastor Henry did a a great job beginning us in the series of Genesis and and he pointed out how in our cultural moment Genesis 1-1 just that very first word in the beginning God how implausible that is in our culture today Charles Taylor and other scholars have pointed out that 500 years ago, around 1500 in the West, it was almost impossible not to believe in God. But now today, 500 years later, not only is it possible not to believe in God, believing in him is actually one of the harder options intellectually. So just as the existence of God is something that's far from a given in our cultural moment, you continue reading in verse 2 and you come to these words. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first Day. What you find is that the God who is revealed to us, who is revealing himself to us in Genesis chapter 1 is a God who gets things done with words, who gets things done by speaking. The pattern throughout the whole chapter is this. God speaks, let there be and there is. But the pattern continues. God doesn't just speak and creation happens. He speaks and he gives purpose. He names, he blesses. He creates light, he calls it good, he names it day. But can our minds really believe this account of origins? I mean, maybe our hearts might long for something like this to be true, but can we really believe it in our minds? You might be emotionally attracted to it, but is it intellectually plausible? Well, theologian and cultural commentator Andy Crouch has an interesting approach to this question. He actually suggests that it's easier today to believe in the Genesis account of origins than it was a hundred years ago. Oh. It's actually easier today, to, given all that we know from a scientific perspective, to believe Genesis 1 today than it was 100 years ago. He puts it this way, and he was writing a couple years ago in 2017, Andy writes this. First, the very best time to be an intellectually satisfied atheist was 100 years ago, circa 1917, and it has been getting gradually harder ever since. And second, 100 years from now, circa 2117, it is entirely possible that the most intellectually coherent account of the cosmos on the basis of all that we know will be in deep continuity with biblical Trinitarian faith. So what does Andy mean by that? How can he make that statement, that claim? Well, he points out that the modern consensus in 1917 was that the universe had no origin, that matter was eternally existing, and that you explain the origin of human beings by evolutionary processes from this sort of eternally existing matter. But today, a hundred years later, we have learned in the scientific consensus is that the universe did have an origin. And the best scientists and physicists of today would say, they, we, using our instruments in our study, we can look back and say this universe had a beginning point the big bang theory that there was a moment when it wasn't here and then something happened and we have what we have today there was an origin point which is exactly what genesis 1 suggests and 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 moreover the more we have learned about life and the laws of, of physics and, and how the universe is arranged and gravity and the, the, the fine-tuning that's necessary for not just human life but any life to exist. The perfect arrangement of us from the sun and all of these kinds of things. It, the design that seems to be evident in that makes it not harder to believe in a creation account by a god but actually more compelling. Also, the personal and relational nature of life itself is becoming more and more apparent, not just sort of at at the human being level, but but, uh, for example, evolutionary biologist Jeffrey Slosh has pointed out the ways that life becomes more personal and relational and capable of sacrifice and love, the, The sort of the more it develops, the more complex it gets. He's not a a Christian, but he's noticing this capacity for relationship and sacrifice and love and the complexity of life. To which Andy Crouch asks the question Is it actually possible that an impersonal world would give rise to persons? Does it not make far more sense to suppose that such a world is in some mysterious way not just capable of personhood? but defined by it. Not just capable of life, but defined by life. It's harder than ever to hold a purely naturalistic account of the world. And it's not just Christian theists who are making this point. Other philosophers are as well. For example, the book Mind and Cosmos, He does not come to a, a, a Christian perspective on this question, but pokes deep philosophical holes in a purely naturalistic account of the world. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't challenges to the Christian biblical account, but the Christian account is becoming more plausible the more we learn and study scientifically, not less so. And there are a lot of, of Christians, as well as a lot of, of non-Christian naturalistic scientists who will claim to be able to tell you exactly how and when the universe was created. We have to remember only God was actually there in that moment, right? Right? but actually that it's Christians who have the most intellectual options on this. Graham Cole, one of my favorite professors in seminary, pointed out that Christians actually have the most sort of intellectual freedom in this area, right? If you are approaching the question of origins in a a university science department, you have one option open to you, naturalistic evolution. That's it but Christians throughout history have held all a variety of different ways of understanding how God might have done this, how long it might have took, what, how do we understand the, the, the literature of Genesis 1. Christians actually have more intellectual freedom and opportunity. The church is a place of greater intellectual openness and less intellectual tyranny than in the academy on this question. And we have to remember, too, that science is the current consensus that's always open to change, right? Science is simply the current consensus that's always open to change. Just as an example of this, uh, consider Joseph Lister. So 150 years ago, um, this is like 1880s. Joseph Lister is a a doctor, surgeon, scientist out of England, began pioneering the concept of antiseptic surgery. The idea that you ought to to wash your hands and your instruments, that germs are what cause infection, that dirty hands, dirty surgical instruments, are actually what cause infection. 150 years ago, he was mocked, openly mocked, by the reigning scientific establishment of the day, a medical community as those things are a waste of time. They don't do any good. Why bother washing your hands? It was actually considered a sort of you, you, if you didn't have sort of your hands dirtied as a surgeon, you weren't really a good surgeon. That was just 150 years ago. That's really not that long ago. Where will we be at 150 years from now? Each generation, we tend to think that we've come to the, the apex of sort of knowledge and understanding of the world, right? But generation after generation, we make further advances, understand more of the world and how it works. What are the things that we hold a scientific fact in 2017 that in 2117 will be looked upon as foolish? It may not always be easy. And there will always be challenges, but your mind can believe this. Which is why there are so many Christians who work in scientific and medical and research professions, right? Because they know that deep down there isn't a fundamental contradiction between being a person of faith and having a a, a scientific understanding and pursuit in the world and pursuing scientific inquiries. Many of you here, whether it's in the medical profession or others, work in that scientific realm. We're so grateful for that. These are not fundamentally contradictory, and we need more, not less, thoughtful Christians engaged in those important areas of study and research and application. A gloriously good God has created a gloriously good creation. Your mind can believe it, and second, your eyes can also see it in the world and in the Word your eyes can see it in the Word and in the world. Genesis 1 is a gloriously beautiful account of the origins of the universe with symmetry and order and wonder. And, and notice, if, you, if you've read Genesis 1, even as you heard us read it this morning, this, this patterning of the days. In Genesis 1-1, we have this, this big summary introductory statement that says, in the beginning, God created everything that exists. But then in Genesis 1-2, We read that creation, it's not yet ready for human habitation. It's not yet ready for human habitation. It's formless and empty or formless and void. But God's spirit is hovering over the waters and glory is about to happen. God speaks and light appears day one. God speaks and sky appears day two. God speaks and dry land covered in lush plant lights appears day three. You can see how this begins to unfold in the text. I think I have a a chart of this. But in days one through three, God is forming what was formless. And then you turn the corner into day four and God is filling what was void or empty. Look at day four. God speaks and light and dark of day one are filled with the sun and moon and stars. I love verse 16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night, and the stars. It's, just, it's almost a throwaway, the sun and the moon, and then, oh, by the way, and the stars. Just like that. There are a hundred billion stars galaxies filled with billions of stars. They did some work on this and the best sort of astronomy says that there's somewhere between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies. And it's a pretty big range, right? But even if you take the low end of of estimate and say there's 100 billion galaxies and and here are 10,000 of them. This is a a photo from the, the Hubble Space Telescope. Those are not stars that you see. Those are galaxies, every single one of them, 10,000 galaxies in a particular patch of sky that Hubble was looking at. Each one of those is a galaxy filled with billions of stars. Day five... The sea teems with swarms of fish. The sky teems with swarms of birds. Day seven or day six, the land, the forest, the plains, the jungles, the mountains are filled with all kinds of animals. And also human beings are made in the image of God. Which this is so significant that we're actually going to spend an entire sermon on the image of God and what it means to be human, made in the image of God next week. So so make sure to come back and to hear that. We're going to focus a whole message on that. So what was formless and empty is now formed and filled, ready for human life in the land. And then on day seven, God rests he rests and he enjoys he looks at and sees beholds all that he has created and he is declared again and again it is good it is good it is good and then he looks at the crown of creation human beings and all the other things that he has made spoken into being created out of nothing and he says behold it is very good your eyes if they are open can see the glorious goodness of the God who's created a glorious good creation. And God's creation is his word to us. When we think of God's word, we, we often and rightly think of the Bible, the scriptures. But just as he has breathed out these words through human authors, so God has spoken Trees into existence, stars and trees and galaxies are God's words spoken to us. Spoken, ordered with beauty and light. And if God can do that, if he can speak galaxies into existence, if he can speak trees into existence, if he can order creation, then he can order your life. He can order your day. He can help you when you feel like things are out of control. Which brings us to our last point. Gloriously good God has made a gloriously good creation. Our, Our minds can believe it. Our eyes can see it. And finally, our hearts long for it. Our hearts long for it. Your heart longs for an account of origins like this. But what what we have here in Genesis 1 is so different both from the other ancient creation stories as well as from the modern accounts of origins. Right? And, and Pastor Henry did a little bit of this work for us last week, but when you compare Genesis 1 and 2, the account of origins that, that Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is so different from the surrounding nations of Israel. It's so different from the Egyptians where they had been enslaved for 400 years. It's so different from the accounts of creation in the Canaanite area where they were going to be headed. God is giving them a picture of this is, this is different than anything else. There are similarities on the surface of some of these accounts, but at the core, they are so different. You have some accounts of creation that say that, you know, it's a a war between these gods and the universe, and that there's half of a god is cut in half, and one part of that god's body becomes the earth, and the other part of it becomes the sea, and the other part of it becomes the sky, that this god is being chopped up into all these different pieces. You have another account that says basically uh, the gods got tired of taking care of the world and so they made human beings to do it for them. This is not what you find in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is this picture of self-giving love and generosity which is also so different than, than a naturalistic evolutionary account of origins that is too based on violence the survival of the fittest, the suppression of the weak. It's not based on on love, not joy and beauty and purpose. The biblical account of creation and origin is an account of love and generosity overflowing from the triune life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in joyful relationship with one another, pouring out their love and joy to create creatures to share in their life. Right? God does not create because he's lonely. He doesn't create because he needs people to do work for him that he doesn't want to do. God is perfectly joyful and happy in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of an overflow of joy, wanting to share that joy in life, he creates creatures who can know him and love him and join in the eternal dance of love. And a Christian. Understanding of the world, what is at the center of the universe is not raw power, but the beauty of self giving love and generosity. And woven into these accounts is goodness. Again and again, good, it is good, it is good. And there's purpose from the very beginning. Each set of creation is given its purpose. Stars, moon, sun to rule the day, the night animals to be fruitful and multiply human beings to be fruitful and multiply and cultivate and wisely govern creation as kings and kings made in the image of the king of all the universe so which of those accounts friends which of those accounts resonates more with the longing of your heart god is the happiest being in all of existence creating in love inviting us to share in his love with him and when you stand in the beauty of a national park or even just gaze at a sunset in Kansas City on a walk ask yourself what is this founded on is it is it founded on chance is it founded on violence on the rejection of the weak and the vulnerable When you hold a newborn baby in your arms and gaze into her eyes, ask yourself, is is all that is here time plus chance plus matter? Or is there something more? What does your heart long for? Everything that is good and true and beautiful, finds its origin here in Genesis 1. And when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to also discover the origin of evil and brokenness that is in our world. We'll get there in a few weeks. But all the, the good that we long for is here in Genesis 1. Okay. But what does this all mean for us tomorrow? What does this mean for you tomorrow on Monday when you go to school, when you go to work, when you go to whatever it is that God has called you to be doing this time tomorrow? What does it mean for you then? Why does it matter on Monday that a gloriously good God has created a gloriously good creation? Let me just give us a couple of quick ideas on this. Uh, First, it, it matters because it orients you in the universe. Who are you? Who are you? I want to suggest that you are not a consumer who lives in a store whose life is defined by buying and selling and getting stuff. You are not a consumer living in a store. You are not just an animal reproducing your genes in a survival of the fittest context. You are not just a voter living in a political universe seeking power. You are a creature Living in a creation. That's who you are. You are a creature living in a creation. And because you are a creature living in a creation, it means that someone outside of you loves you and brought you into existence, not by accident or by chance, but because he wanted you to exist. You are a creature loved by the God of the universe. Not here by accident. You are a creature living in a creation. And because you are a creature living in a creation, it means that someone outside of you also defines good and evil. There is a creator who again and again defines what is good for us in Genesis 1. It is good, it is good, it is good. And who will call evil, evil as well. God is the one who declares what is good. God is the one who declares what is evil. We as creatures look to him for the definition of good and evil, of right and wrong, of beauty and truth. You are a creature living in a creation, so ultimately you are not your own. You don't get to decide on your own what to do with your body or your time or your money. You are a creature made in love by a creator. And you belong to a loving, self-giving creator who knows your best and will, if you trust him, lead you into goodness and life. And when that happens, you respond with worship and joy, delighting in the creation and in the creator you are a creature living in a creation, so respond by enjoying the creation and by enjoying through the creation the God who made it all. In her wonderful little book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, Trish Warren writes this. just says this, when we enjoy God's creation, We reflect God himself. God does not stoically pronounce creation good like a disinterested manager checking off the quality checklist so he can clock out early. God delights in the perfect acoustics of ocean waves, swoons of the subtle intensity of dark chocolate, and glories in robin's eggs and peacock calls. Never forget that you are a creature living in a creation. Never lose your wonder of the world in which you are made and the wonder of who you are as a human being made in the image of God. But it's so easy for us to lose our wonder. It's so easy for these things to become dull, for the creation to become monotonous to us. Right, when you, if you're around little kids, if you're—if you're a teacher, if you are a parent or a grandparent or aunt and uncle, if you're around little kids at all, right, you know that everything is amazing to little kids. <laughs> Graham, our six-month-old baby, just looks at his his uh, five-year-old sister with this look of like, "What are you gonna do next? You're amazing." I mean, she just stares at it. L- with little kids, it's everything is amazing. But as adults, we begin to lose our capacity for wonder. Never stop responding to the, in worshipful wonder to the creator who has made you and given you such a glorious creation in which to live. And, and no one has put this better than G.K. Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton, who wrote uh, in the early 1900s, he wrote what I'm about to read for you in, in 1909, right about that time when Andy Crouch said it was the time that you could most easily be an intellectually satisfied atheist. G.K. Chesterton recovers his faith and he writes a classic book called Orthodoxy. And in it, he says this He says, A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged, they always say, Do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Look, as a dad of a five-year-old and a dad of a two, almost three-year-old, I live in the do-it-again world. They always say do it again until the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not as strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. Take a look at this. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately because he has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And Chesterton is right. We have sinned and grown old. We worship God's creation rather than him as creator. And when we began to do that, when we began to define right and wrong, on our own apart from him worshiping our own sense of self-sufficiency then order and chaos and death entered into the good world that God had made but friends when Jesus looked down and saw the order the disorder the chaos the 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 evil that had been wrought in the good world that he made he came He entered into that creation that he had made. Jesus, the creator, took on creation, a fully and truly creator God, became a fully and truly human creature, the God-man Jesus. And on the cross, the one who formed all of creation was deformed and destroyed. The one who filled all of creation with life and glory was emptied and poured out for you. The one who designed the foot washed the feet of his disciples. And later felt the nail pierce his feet. The one who lovingly designed and made the hand. Healed the hand of the withered man at the synagogue and then felt the nails rip through the flesh of his wrists. The one who spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light cried out at a moment of unnatural darkness at the noonday on the cross as he was dying and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who gave life to all gave up his life so that all who believe in him might never die and be able to live again. The one who rose again invites you to lose your life so that you might truly find your life in his resurrection. The one who created all things was uncreated on the cross so that we might become new creations in him. For everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you in him? Do you worship him on Sunday with all your breath and with all your strength on Monday morning? In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. And as we come to do that, oh, let us come and adore the gloriously good God who created a gloriously good creation and rescued it from sin and death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have created us made us in your image to delight in you to love you to enjoy you forever